Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries and in this episode I'm going to be talking about buying property and such like in D&D style games. Okay, so before we get started on the main thrust of the episode, I've got a few voicemail messages. The first couple are from Shandy Andy, and then there's a couple from Tim Shorts of Gothridge Manor. So take it away, Shandy Andy. Hey up, John. Shandy Andy here, a long-term lurker on your podcast. I think this is my first call-in. Uh, Landscape Books, um, that episode... I'd just like to say you've made me feel completely inadequate as an RPG gamer because I've just been through my collection and I don't have a single landscape book. Um, so the closest I get is I've got the old um, box sets for the Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the black box. And I do agree it is a bit of a nuisance, um, them sticking out. But I have to say, <laughs> along the lines of Jason with his suggestion, uh, I actually recently bought a load of new shelving for my RPG collection and what I've actually done is I bought shelving that stuck out a bit further so if you've got the room to do it that is the way to go I did have this idea of putting like little dragons and ornaments on the front you know but I kept knocking them off so don't go there thanks very much for your suggestion there Shandy Andy and I think yeah having like a lot wider shelves is a, a brilliant proposition for for dealing with that part of the problem with the landscape books. I suppose really I'm just bitter there. Like I've I've had these like custom shelves built along the walls and now landscape books don't really fit on them and it'd be a fairly big operation to like redo them. However, that's not really my main gripe with them, although the storage is just like a little niggle. It's the the lack of ease of use when it comes to the gaming table. So they're more unwieldy, they take up more space. And I know strictly speaking in terms of area, they don't take up more space, but it's just a more inconvenient shape for me to lay out on the tabletop. But like you say, there are ways and means around it. And even though I find landscape books inconvenient, if the content is good enough, I will still buy them. So let's go on to your next call, Andy. Thank you very much for that. Hey up, John. Shandy Andy here. I know us all about Arneson. Uh, what a great idea for an episode. Uh, really enjoyed listening to that. Very sad that it seemed that most of the stuff that came out was the argument that uh, between Arneson and uh, Gygax. Uh, but uh, it was uh, interesting uh, listening to you, uh, finding out, your wife finding out about the various things about Arneson. And um, I enjoyed it. Keep up the good work, mate. Thanks very much for that, Andy. I really do appreciate that. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, it was great fun watching uh, Hannah sort of explore something that I know a little bit about, but that she didn't really. And I always enjoy getting Hannah in my podcast episodes. I'm hoping to do that in the future. It's just when our sort of work schedules can sync up because she works on shifts. So I sort of do like eight till four. So sometimes it can be a little bit difficult depending on when I get an idea for a podcast. But hopefully you'll hear more of her in the future i do agree that it's unfortunate that when you just try and find out about arneson from a sort of 
knowing not much about him, the first thing you come across is the whole Gygax harness and argument. And it's the same with any sort of debate slash argument online. The, the sort of few people who shout the loudest tend to be the ones that get most heard. But I think as with any story involving people, things are never quite as simple as they seem. But thanks very much for your calling and your kind words, Andy. Next up, we've got a couple of voicemail messages from Tim at Gothridge Manor, legendary anchorite. So take it away, Tim. Hey, John, this is Tim Shorts of Gothridge Manor. I'm kind of doing some catch-ups on some podcasts, and here's one I was listening tonight, driving to go get some pizza tonight. And uh, the first thing was for the landscape books, uh, I agree, 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 agree all the way across the board. Uh, it's, I think it's a bit of our gamer OCD about our books on our shelves. We all have our weird ways of way we like to organizing. And when you mess with the format, it just, it, it just, it, it makes it like a look like a tumor in your books, on your book thing. Like you said, then you got to tip it up and that doesn't look good and it doesn't match the other ones. I don't like it. I don't like, and, and I'll tell you the truth too. I don't like landscape uh, PDFs either for reasons of like when I'm trying to use them as reference material, I get them on my, my screen and I have to reformat them. And so I agree. Thanks very much for that, Tim. Hope you enjoyed your pizza. Now, as I was saying in response to Shandy Andy's call, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, it is part of that whole sort of gamer OCD thing. Although I have started to worry that recently I've sort of leveled up in that regard because I've started to get to the point now where like I don't even like books that are bigger than digest size. And I think part of that originally came from when I was going to cons. It's a hell of a lot easier to carry a few digest size books with me since I can't really read PDFs for a great deal of time due to my epilepsy. It's a great deal easier to carry digest books than it is to carry like big sort of A4 style books. And it's got to the point now where the the other GMs at the Games On Demand it, uh, the UK Games Expo that I help with have started referring to me as the small book guy, which is an epithet I'm more than happy with. But yeah, I, I think there's there's ways and means around things, but I do agree with you, especially when it comes to landscape PDFs. They just seem to be difficult to manage and they don't add an awful lot in regards to the usability of PDFs or print books in my mind. So I don't really see the point of doing it yeah you can work your way around it but why should you have to when a publisher could just like print it in the the portrait format that's been working fine for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, i suppose unless you go back to like scrolls which i suppose technically a landscape but we won't go there so thank you very much for your call in tim and we've got another one from tim coming up now so take it away all right, and then I'm going to comment on your potions one. The whole taste thing, I, I, uh, I just <laughs> never been a fan of it. So what I kind of usually do is I, I uh, identify is not an available thing for BX, but I make it available in a way. But it's uh, what I do for potions is like if they use an identify spell, they can do them like in batches, so that way they know what which ones are which or whatever. But the little sippy sip thing, nah, I, I don't, I don't have that work or anything. But what I'll have to do, like say someone who's a mage or someone who's a study um, alchemy, they might be able to recognize it by the color or the smell or uh, some other identifying marks. Maybe there's a potion maker in town 
who, who marks his bottles, and he's, you know, famous for flying potions. So, all right, John, take care, man. Great podcast. Thanks very much, Tim. And yeah, to be honest, I can see your point about potions. I suppose that having people take like a little sip of it and having it have some effect could be seen as taking away from the sort of balawick of the the spellcaster, the mage, the the apothecary, the sage, you know, the person you take it to to get that sort of shit identified. I, I think the only reason I, I like to go for that is because quite often I've I've played games where there's maybe not a mage or there's not a person who can identify that stuff regularly. And certainly when you're low level, which is where a lot of games tend to sort of stay, you maybe don't have the readies to trip off to the apothecary every time you discover a potion. And yeah, you could say, well, one, it just goes a lit down and like see what happens. But I think anyone who's played MSR games for, for more than a short while is going to realize that sooner or later you're going to hit that poison and your character is going to end up brown bread thanks to that indiscretion. So I find the little the little sippy way of doing it, for me anyway, I mean, obviously it's all personal opinion, works quite well. And I tend to give a, a, quite, quite a sort of cryptic hint about what the effect of the potion is. So the players still have to work stuff out. They can't just keep sipping it or eventually they'll run out. But... It gives them a chance, if they've not got a major, they've not got the money to go to an apothecary, it gives them the chance to puzzle it out. So, for instance, it, let's say they've got a, a potion of flight and they take a little, tiny little sip of it, and I say, oh, as you're walking around, you feel a little bit lighter on your feet. Well, that could still be like a potion of levitation, a potion of flight, maybe a potion of ethereal form. Who knows? They've still got it to, to puzzle it out, but the little sippy at the start gives them a clue to sort of point them in the right direction. But like I say, it's just a matter of personal preference, really. Thank you very much to your call, Tim, and also to Shandy Andy for his calls earlier. I really do enjoy getting these voicemails, so thank you very much, guys. Right, so now we're going to crack on with the mainstay of our episode. Okay, so why do I want to talk about property in D&D-style games? Well, it's always been a sort of unspoken assumption in D&D games, at least as far as I can remember, that when the player characters get to a certain level, they're still going to be exploring dungeons and stuff like that and finding treasure, all the normal good stuff we expect in D&D. But there's an expectation that you shift into a sort of domain-level play. You know, you're no longer anonymous adventurers. You become real movers and shakers in whatever session, you're, whatever sort of uh, rule system you're using. And that goes part and parcel with building a domain, whether it's a, a wizard's tower, whether it's a fortress for a fighter. And that is, in a lot of OSR D&D style systems, enshrined within the rules. You reach level 9 or whatever, and you start attracting henchmen if you have a sufficient stronghold or a wizard's tower or whatever. So it's obviously supposed to be an important part of D&D. But I've got to confess that when I've been playing games, we never really seem to get to that stage. Or if we do, you know, it's a sort of half-hearted thing. Maybe you get a few henchmen, a few hirelings. But it never really seems to be the domain play, whether it's just a case of we never have enough money to build the fortress or whatever, or we never get to the high enough levels. It's a part of the game that I've never really got to explore. And it's a part of the game that led me to looking at the Adventurer Conqueror King system by Alexander McCree. And that seems to be a game that 
although it's a bit more rulesy than my preference when it comes to D&D style games, a lot of those rules seem to be focused on domain level play. So for instance, there's rules for clearing out a domain, there's costs for building your stronghold, how much revenue you can gain from it, how many people you can attract. And obviously all of this is tied in with the classes that are presented in Adventure of Conqueror King or Axe, as it's known. However, like most OSR games, they're pretty easily adaptable to different systems that use the same basic D&D framework. And I was thinking about this in particular recently because in my Castles and Crusades game, uh, my CSI Midlands game that's currently running, the players have for various reasons come across a group of thieves who own a small property in Bishopsgate in Great London, which is a sort of temple district, a very sort of upper class area where all the finest temples are built. There's people selling candles and preaching on the street corners. The smell of incense wafts strong in the air and the prayers of the faithful are ever present. However, as you might expect, being north of the river and being like quite sort of high class, that means property values are up, 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 up. So they've come across these thieves who somehow own this like small sort of slightly rundown building it's a two-story stone building that has a basement which has a, a tunnel that leads into the Middlelands equivalent of the Underdog, the Upper Middergloom as it's called. And for various reasons, the player characters want to have a regular way to get into the Upper Middergloom. So they're considering buying this house off the thieves because the thieves are like, well, there's some nasty monsters down in that upper middle gloom and to be honest we were just using the cave below the basement to hide our stash of illegals in it now we've realized there's monsters down there we're thinking of pretty much collapsing the stairway down into the cavern blocking it off putting it in our rear view mirror and thinking no more about it and going on with our lives and of course the players don't want them to do this but they can't persuade them not to collapse it because as far as the thieves are concerned whatever illegals they were going to hide isn't worth risking a tide of undead ogres and whatnot bubbling up from the underdog so one possibility the players have been thinking about is purchasing the building off them and then as far as the thieves are concerned probably it's not their problem so the players can keep the staircase they've got their entrance into the upper middle gloom and they've also got a bit of a base of operations to sally forth from in whatever goals they have in the future now that's absolutely great and i love the fact they're going down that but as a gm it left me with a little bit of a quandary because i'll be perfectly honest with you my knowledge of how much buildings cost in a sort of faux medieval period isn't really that great however i knew that the axe system had some sort of stuff like that in so i quickly turned to chapter seven which is all about building strongholds and growing domains and what would you know, there is a handy dandy table in there which talks about civilian structure costs. And it lists a stone townhouse, 20 foot high, 30 foot square, thatched roof, wood floor and stairs as costing approximately 1,200 gold pieces. Now, the, the townhouse they bought is a little bit more expansive than this, and also it's in a very upper class area, so it's gonna cost a bit more. So I effectively doubled it and rounded it up a little bit to say that it was 2,500 gold pieces. Now, obviously that's a ridiculous amount if you are a peasant, but if you're a peasant, you're not gonna be buying a probably 
an old shop in a temple district, an upper class district of a large metropolis. Whereas the player characters, who recently have had a bit of a lucky run in when it comes to finding gemstones and other things that are valuable in the upper middle gloom, are thinking, well, to be honest, we've we've got quite a bit of money. We've probably got enough money to buy ourselves our main fighter's armor and maybe even still buy this building and kit it out a bit. So I'm interested to see where that's going to go in future. Now, my question for you, the listener out there is, have you ever found a situation where you've had to sort of come up with the cost of property on the spur of the moment? Or have your player characters begun to transition into that sort of domain level play? I know that I, my game specifically, it's not typical domain level play because they're in a giant metropolis. They're not fighting back the wilderness and just building a village in the middle of nowhere. It's an already established huge city, but they are starting to get on the property ladder. So to, my question to you out there again is how have you handled such things in your game? Have you... Have you maybe scaled those heady heights of domain level play? Did you think it added a great deal of stuff to your game? I would love to hear your answers and your thoughts on domain level play in D&D. You can leave me a voicemail message on Anchor or you can drop me an email at reddicediaries at gmail.com. I really do enjoy listening to the voicemails and I think they're part of what makes running an Anchor podcast so vital and so engaging. So until I see you next time, take care, whatever you're playing, have fun. See you soon.